from New York City. This is Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit. I'm Matt Singer. And I'm Allison Wilmore. Coming up on this week's show, we swaddle ourselves in scarves and fur coats and head off to Russia to chronicle the glorious revolution as we discuss Warren Beatty's Reds. But first up, comrades, is Q Shots, our look at some of the current offerings on various streaming and VOD sites, all centered around a common theme. Inspired by Reds, we thought this week we'd just skip the movies entirely and devote this section to whether it's humanly possible for Warren Beatty to have slept with 12,775 women in his lifetime, as suggested by Peter Biskin's 2010 book, Star, How Warren Beatty Seduced America. But the mathematical calculations quickly became too complicated for liberal arts types like ourselves, so instead we thought we'd look at some other films from the new Hollywood era to which Reds belongs. Allison, is there anything we want to say in a general sense about the new Hollywood era before we begin? Well, you know, we're the same age, and I feel like growing up when I really started to become aware and really interested in contemporary films, it was so divided between studio films and independent films. And you had that real idea that a studio film was a commercial enterprise. That didn't mean it wasn't good, but that it was made clearly to, you know, with marketing in mind and with large audiences in mind and a box office opening weekend. And then independent films and foreign films, which got grouped in there, were where you'd find ambitious ideas, where you'd find interesting, unusual, challenging filmmaking. And the idea that during the new Hollywood era, you had all these films that were challenging, that were ambitious, that had very strong voices, that were being made through the studio system, is still something that I have. It kind of blows my mind every time I go back and look. Just that looking at the, the places, the studios that made a lot of the films that we'll mention later on, like it's amazing to me that millions of dollars were invested in some of these ideas that you know, we're shockingly brazenly uncommercial. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's sort of like the Loch Ness monster. It's like, it's, it seems like it should be a myth. Like no one should have ever seen this existed, but it did for a, a long sustained period where basically desperation caused the studios to try something new and bring in these new young filmmakers and give them a great deal of creative control And they produced some really interesting things. And maybe what's even more insane about that period is not that they made these movies, because there's movies just as creative and interesting being made today, but they're being made, as you said, for the most part, outside the system. These are not movies that were made by an independent producer and then acquired by a small boutique arm of, let's say, Fox. This was not Fox Searchlight. This was 20th Century Fox. I know some of the movies we're going to talk about have like 20th Century Fox fanfare. Right. And then a very austere and serious movie with an incredibly depressing ending. (laughs) And you go, how did this happen? Yeah. You know, Reds, this 194 minute film about a radical journalist uh, getting swept up in the communist movement of the, you know, 1910s and 20s. This was a Paramount Pictures film, you know, who, right. you know, this Not summer Paramount out. classics right. or Paramount Vantage. No, the, you know, the studio that put out Katy Perry's 3D <laughs> concert movie and the latest Madagascar <laughs> film, like this, which isn't bad, which is not bad. No, I think we both are great defenders of that. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think that it's a really it was really the heyday of uh, mainstream movies for grownups and all of those things that like brought it together from the the demise of the production code to just the rise of counterculture really did create this moment in in the Hollywood era that was it was pretty remarkable right and and I guess we should say if you're totally unfamiliar with the phrase new hollywood the new hollywood era it did start around the very late 1960s and proceeded through the 
1970s into the very early 1980s, the sort of most famous text about the period, Easy Riders, Raging Bulls, which was written by Peter Biskin, the same guy who wrote that biography Warren of Warren Beatty. The title kind of sums up for you the, the, the rough length of the period, which was from Easy Rider, which is the late 60s, to Raging Bulls, which is early 80s. And, of course, in the mid-1970s is where you start to see the decline of the new Hollywood era. That's, of course, when Jaws and Star Wars come out and sort of rewrote the book again of what Hollywood could be with the release of these huge blockbusters, which were released all over the country, which at that time was very unusual to release a movie in – at that time, it was probably like a thousand theaters at most it was like unheard of. And those movies made so much money that it, it suddenly was like, why are we releasing these austere black and white movies set in the depression about people <laughs> who are hungry and sad? We could release this popcorn movie about people running away from a shark and make tens of millions of dollars in one weekend. And that sort of changed things. But it, the the filmmakers who were sort of primary in this movement did hang on for a few more years. And it was kind of. It's a, sort of a beautiful tragedy in a way. Their own their own arc was sort of like a new Hollywood movie in that they had these beautiful beginnings, and some of them got caught up in let's you know drugs, right? And some of them got caught up in their own success. They maybe became a little bit too full of themselves. Um, some of them got caught up in interpersonal rivalries. There's all sorts of reasons, but basically by the end of the '70s, they started to flame out. And then by the end of or the beginning of the 80s, rather, that was sort of the the end of of what was the new Hollywood era. Do you think we'll ever see something like that again? Well, I do think that we are seeing the demise of the the studio indie divide because mm-hmm. a lot of independent films are just as commercial, made with just as much of a commercial angle in mind these days. You know, particularly the ones that are a few million dollars and might have a lot of stars in them. So I don't think it's quite so there's quite as clear a divide or sense of that divide these days. I don't know that that means we do seem to be going in a direction where you have $300 million blockbusters and then nothing in between until you get to like, uh, like a $20 million drama maybe. Mm. Uh, but I do think that it's not quite as easy to break up those, you know? So, and I, I think we do see people like Soderbergh or uh, Fincher who know how to work within the studio system and I think how to do some interesting things within the realms of what, at least on the surface, is a commercial film. Soderbergh is such an interesting example because my question that I asked to you, sitting here, I'm going, you know, I look at some of these movies that have opened this summer, movies like Battleship, that cost hundreds of millions of dollars, John Carter, and then end up making relatively little money that they're sometimes tens or hundreds of millions of dollars of flops you know that these sure things don't seem as sure as they used to be and on the other hand you see a guy like Soderbergh make a movie like Magic Mike which has made over 60 million dollars so far and granted it has a sort of an easy hook right these it has beautiful meatheads uh taking off their shirts and their pants i suppose as well and that movie has made 60 million dollars on a budget of seven million dollars and when you see the movie although it does have very sellable elements it is very much like a new hollywood movie right down to the kind of spoiler alert somewhat of a bummer ending you know it doesn't have like a super happy ending and the opening credits the logo the warner brothers logo is like the old 1970s throwback logo as if to suggest that this movie belongs in some way at least in spirit to the new hollywood era and i see that i see the way that these huge movies that 
are the still the thing that dominates Hollywood. I see them kind of failing. And then I see a movie like Magic Mike make so much money off of such a small investment. And I I wonder if perhaps there may be some in some small way a movement back towards the new Hollywood-ish style of filmmaking. Maybe it's just hopeful thinking on my part. I would love to see that. Right. And I think, you know, it's, it's desperation that caused it the first time. And we are getting close to some sense of desperation these days in the industry. So who knows? That's a great, great point. Okay, what's uh, your first film? My first film is one of the big films of this era, which is uh, Dog Day Afternoon, 1975, right there in the heart of, of the, the new Hollywood era, directed by Sidney Lumet, and it is available streaming on Netflix. And this is based on a true story, something that actually happened in Brooklyn, 1972. It was reported on in Life magazine, set in a wonderfully grubby early 1970s New York. And really, I feel like this is in some ways one of the most New York movies of all time, just in its attitude and in the way it portrays the city in this very lived-in way. But uh, starring Al Pacino, of course, as Sonny, who, along with his friend Sal and a much less prepared other accomplice, attempts to rob a bank in, uh, in Gravesend in Brooklyn. It does not go well. Uh, there's almost no cash because they got there after the daily pickup in the afternoon. Uh, and they end up alerting the cops to their presence accidentally, and soon they're in a hostage standoff. Beyond uh, the great sense of New York that this film has, it also has a real sense of that moment in time. You know, the one of his famous moments, one of the famous moments in the film is when Sonny first goes outside to the crowd and, you know, rallies them by screaming, like, Attica, Attica. Uh, in a reference to <laughs> something that it's, a, it's funny because that line is so famous still to this day. And it's the movie has immortalized it, but I don't think people even understand what it means. Right. And it's a reference to Attica, the prison, right? right? A and, prison and, riot. Like uh, 30 something people getting killed right. by the guards. Look at him. Get over there. Go on back there, man. Get over there. He wants to kill me so bad he can taste it. I got always going to kill you. Attica. Attica. At the time, it probably had a lot more resonance, and now the lines become famous unto itself, right. and people have forgotten what actually happened. But, you know, it was a sign of why everyone's so ready to turn on the cops and to boo them and to, right. like... They're the bad guys. They're the bad guys. There's such a sense of disillusionment and, you know, anti-establishment uh, sentiment here, and... When Sonny also talks about being a Vietnam vet, you know, he's very representative of this this time where no one really wanted to align themselves with uh, the man, right? right. And it represented by the law enforcement there. Which is one of those, ten one of the tenets really of, of the new Hollywood movies is these anti-establishment heroes and, you know, cops as the villains. Absolutely. And I mean, those heroes... They're such wonderful, rich characters, but they're also they have some interesting quirks to them too. You know the the reason that he's robbing this bank that I don't know if I don't know if we want to spoil right. it. Right, it's a great reason, but, but it's uh, not something you would see in a traditional, let's say, a fifties no. movie about a couple of bank robbers. Let's right, say. and uh, you know, and I think that the more you learn about him, the more he's completely unfit to be a hero in the traditional, like the sense of being heroic right but he is a great protagonist yes and you do you you do realize that there's not he's not going to 
his plan to get a car to drive him to a Jets to go away from here. Um, and he asks uh, Sal at one point, you know, where, what country he would like to go to, to which Sal, who is not the brightest bulb in the basket, says Wyoming. Uh, that that you and everyone else, you get the feeling most of the other people around him are also kind of concerned about how he's not going to find his way out of this, you know, as the situation gets more and more tense and uh, it's really claustrophobic in the bank and it's hot uh, and people, you know, there's still always the crowd outside. There's that sense of doom that like has to be there just because how can you ever find your way out of this situation? Um, It's one of like the great uh, Pacino performances and uh, he is like, as you said, he, he reveals these aspects of his character that are so unexpected and so interesting so you know this is a classic film not just of its moment but also in the world of like bank robbing films and hostage films it's uh it's one that's it's you know one of the major ones there so uh that is dog day afternoon and it is available on netflix Okay, well, I guess Al Pacino must have been a pretty big figure in the new Hollywood era because my first pick stars Al Pacino as well. It's called The Panic in Needle Park from 1971, directed by Jerry Schatzberg. Another quintessential New York movie, kind of uh, like Dog Day Afternoon, another quintessential early Al Pacino performance. This is pre-Godfather here. This is one of the roles that supposedly won him the part in The Godfather that the executives watched when he was up for the role. And it has one of the other sort of things you think of when you hear the new Hollywood era, or at least I do, which is frank usage and depiction of drugs. And depictions of drug use on screen have rarely been quite as frank as they are in The Panic in Needle Park, which is this really harrowing movie about this one park this really this one little intersection in new york city and on the upper west side by what's like a really quite a swank area these days now it's a very swank area it's near lincoln center yeah it's a eight blocks from lincoln center it's a now it's a beautiful area then it was known as needle park because it was a place that was notorious i guess for heroin being able to score heroin and the panic of the title means basically there's no heroin in the area The, the the supply has run dry and the junkies are all desperate to get it. I had never seen this movie before. It is available on Netflix. That's where I watched it for the first time this week. And man, it is a harrowing, hard to watch movie. It has, I think what is considered one of the first, I keep wanting to say hardcore depictions. I don't think that's quite the right word. Someone actually shoots up. Right. Someone is shooting up. I don't know if they're actually shooting drugs, but you see them like injecting a needle. And uh, these are the old kind of needles with like the rubber stoppers on the end. They just, they look so unclean. And uh, it's like the opposite of that moment in Pulp Fiction where like drug use is made to look as cool and as like sensual as possible. This is the other side of that where drug use looks as grim and as repellent. Absolutely. And, And Al Pacino is the star and Kitty Wynn is his love interest. And he is basically a junkie when she, she meets him. She's sort of this naive wide-eyed innocent and he takes her under his wing they they have this attraction and she becomes a junkie and we just basically watch her slow slide into whoring herself out for money and and heroin and stuff like that helen i gotta go out for a couple hours why don't you put some clothes on before hank comes huh don't go i gotta go i got business Please don't go. Baby, what do you want me to do? Crawl in here and die with you? For Christ's sakes, the past three days, all you're doing is lying here. You don't get up. You don't get dressed. I want you to shape up. 
I want you to shrink up and get some clothes on. Hey, you want to give it to Hank? Go outside and do it. It's hard to watch, but it's it's so obviously authentic. It just has this flavor of authenticity, which is something else I think you associate with the new Hollywood era, this desire to paint things as they are and to not whitewash things in any way. And you certainly get that in Panic in Needle Park. One of our early SVU listeners' choice movies was Drugstore Cowboy. I thought this would make a fantastic double feature with that movie. Similar depiction of drug use in some ways, but very different. That one, we, as we discussed, has a somewhat more romantic view of the lifestyle, even if things do kind of end in a similarly depressing fashion. But I thought they would make an interesting double feature. I I, I agree. I, yeah. yeah. But you also, like, I, you, you didn't mention that this is co-written by Joan Didion. That's right. Joan Didion and the Duns as well, the produced yes. and wrote it. Yeah, that's right. So that's The Panic in Needle Park. It is available on Netflix Instant. All right. My next pick, and I think you might have someone from this director as well. It is a Robert Altman film. It is Three Women, 1977, and it is streaming on Netflix as well. Uh, And this was kind of famously, Altman said, it was based on a dream he had and did not fully understand. And I don't know that there's a way to fully understand this movie, which is part of the pleasure of it. It really does give you the sense of a dream or an anecdote that someone's telling you that you are only half awake for. And so the logic is a little fuzzy and a little ominous in this case. Uh, It's set in a physical therapy facility it's mainly for the elderly out in the California desert. And uh, Shelley Duvall plays Millie, who works at the facility. And Sissy Spacek is Pinky, who is this kind of childish young woman who's new to the place and who eventually becomes Millie's roommate. And Millie tries so hard and constantly to kind of fit into this idea of what she thinks young womanhood is as if she were kind of constantly reading women's magazines and following all of their advice. She talks all the time about things like she's saving up for a microwave oven and that you can cook a hot dog in three minutes in it or that she's putting together a book of recipes and she's organizing them by how long it takes to cook each thing or that she would like to apply to be the new Breck girl. And everyone tends to ignore her, except for Pinky, who really latches onto her um, and is really, though Millie doesn't seem to see this at the time, like the audience that she's been waiting for. She says at one point, you're the most perfect person I've ever met, Uh, whereas everyone else seems to find Millie pretty ridiculous. I have a new roommate. Of all people, it's Pinky, the new girl at work. She's a strange person, but it's better than waiting around for some fat nurse to answer the notice. Friday is always a great day. Have to work, of course. I headed straight for the shooting range. All the guys were there, and they paid so much attention to me. I I was surrounded. Have you seen this movie, Matt? I haven't, actually. It really uh, does create that sense of, like, that there's this greater meaning there that you can never quite tease out but that these women are uh, you know Altman has said he was uh, very influenced by persona in making the film and there is that sense of one character's identity kind of being switched or even subsumed by another and in the end that maybe their creations or of the third woman who is clearly in a a troubled marriage of her own or um, is looking for some sort of escape but it's a really really interesting movie and also very 
very visually tied into this style, like this dreamlike style. And I think like Shelley Duvall is particularly great as Millie, who's uh, ridiculous and tragic at the same time. So uh, that is Three Women, and it is streaming on Netflix. Okay. Well, I don't have an Altman film, actually. I was I was considering a few of his movies, um, but I ended up not putting him on there. I do have a movie by one of my favorite filmmakers, George Roy Hill. This is a movie I included because I felt like another big kind of tenet of the new Hollywood era is genre revisionism. And I felt like I couldn't really do something like this without something in that vein, something that took a classical genre and really gave it a twist, because that seemed to be a big part of the new Hollywood era, reconsidering these classic ideas about genre, and also in some ways reconsidering classic ideas about America, which is especially what the Western is always about, right? Defining what it means to be an American, to be a pioneer, to be a man in some ways. And so I picked a revisionist Western. We once did in our old podcast, I think, a whole episode about revisionist we Westerns. Did. But So there was a few options you could pick because there's a lot of revisionist Westerns in the new Hollywood era, including one by Robert Altman, McCabe and Mrs. Miller, which is a fabulous film. Amazing film. Don't know if it's available. It's not. I looked. Yeah, it's not really available for any sort of streaming options. But this movie is. It's Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. And it it is another movie that does kind of redefine the Western genre. You know, we talked about the new Hollywood era, but I don't know know if we really emphasize enough sort of the cultural movements going on around it. You know, this is the era of Vietnam and Watergate, and everyone was kind of reconsidering what it meant to be good or bad and and how those roles played out in movies changed a lot during this period you know butch and sundance they're great cowboys in some ways you know they're 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 fast on the draw and they're good fighters and stuff but they're also in some ways they're kind of cowards right i mean they spend a lot of the movie running uh which is not something you would imagine like a john wayne doing you know like there's certainly similarities between the kind of rapport that butch and sundance have with the characters in like rio bravo that sort of macho, jokey kind of buddy-buddy thing. But in Rio Bravo, the whole point of the movie is we are staying here and we're protecting these guys in this jail and we're not leaving no matter what, no matter that the odds are against us. And in this movie, it's like, well, let's go to Bolivia. Let's get the heck out of here. Let's hide and let's just keep running. So I think that's interesting that that a reflection of sort of the sensibility of the era, the way that that era was changing things. Maybe there's a way to make a profit in this. Bet on Logan. I would, but who'd bet on you? Sundance. When we're done, if he's dead, you're welcome to stay. Listen, I don't mean to be a sore loser, but uh, when it's done, if I'm dead, kill him. Love to. The other thing that I thought was worth mentioning is the fact that we always talk about the great like directors or the auteurs of this period. And there certainly were a lot of them, including Robert Altman, Martin Scorsese, Francis Ford Coppola, a whole bunch of other people that, you know, my last pick is another guy I haven't mentioned yet, so we'll save him as a surprise. We don't as much talk about the screenwriters, like the screenplays. And there are some amazing screenplays in this era, including Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. And the screenplay by William Goldman is just phenomenal. And there are so many classic unforgettable, quotable lines, you know, even more quotable, even more memorable than Attica, 
from Dog Day Afternoon. Mm-hmm. And I feel like the writer, even as the director became so important, I felt like the writer still had a little bit more value and a little bit more prestige in that period than he does now. So that's Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, a classic I know, but if you've never seen it, it is worth seeing, and that is available on Netflix. All right, my last pick is one of the films that's often used to signal the end of, or the kind of downfall of the new Hollywood era. Maybe we should have saved it for last, yeah, I guess. Well, well, it's all right. Here we are at One from the Heart, 1982 film, directed by Francis Ford Coppola. And along with Heaven's Gate is often you know, used as an example of one of the kind of expensive, ambitious flops that... Uh, that made studios say maybe we shouldn't be doing this anymore a movie like reds which actually was a hit the only difference is it was successful but it's a similar movie in terms of scope and ambition and budget yeah and this film actually it led coppola to declare bankrupt bankruptcy uh he often has said in interviews that you know basically his career for the 80s was defined and into the 90s was defined by his need to make money after going bankrupt. Right. If you're wondering from, why, from the heart. if you're wondering why he ended up making movies like Jack and the, the, the Rainmaker, Rainmaker. Yep. They were done this is the answer off, to pay off his debts yeah. from this production. And it's interesting watching it. I'm actually pretty fond of this movie though it's definitely flawed. But it, it is like a filmmaker's vision gone wild, which is that it's a very straightforward story about a couple, Hank and Franny, played by Frederick Forrest and Terry Garr, who are a very normal kind of working class couple living in Las Vegas, who uh, break up on their fifth anniversary and then kind of slowly they, they find themselves seeing other people over, like on this one night out and then have to consider whether they want to get back together. So pretty straightforward story, but set entirely on sound stages. There's a rebuilt Las Vegas that looks amazing, really. There are like it involves like matte paintings and like it has this both like this highly artificial look, but it also it looks like a movie space, like an mm-hmm. almost like it gives it that heightened sensibility that really contrasts with the very intimate and and not particularly spectacular nature of uh like very realistic relationship problems like getting antsy and feeling worried that you're getting old and wanting more adventure in your life than you have in the godfather he explored the violent world of organized crime in the godfather part two he examined the soul of power and corruption in apocalypse now he journeyed into the madness of war now Academy Award winner Francis Ford Coppola and Zoetrope Studios take a very special look at love. One from the heart. It's been five years since my last dream came true. What was that? The day I met Hank. I wish I had a dollar for Each time I took a chance I really love her. I know that. On all those two Who counted Roma? Maggie, do you believe in true love? Knowing that you fall in love. I love you, baby. Mm, I love you. It's also a musical without necessarily having traditional musical numbers. There's a soundtrack by uh, Crystal Gale and Tom Waits that 
often seems like they're singing ideas that are going through the characters' heads. There are some things that are a little closer to musical numbers, that, um, including one in which Terry Gar's character, having met Raul Julia, uh, uh, like he was playing a, mu- a musician, uh, on the street, they go on a date, and they have like a dance into the streets in like really kind of old school musical style, and everyone on the strip comes out and is dancing, and it's a lovely. Uh, and it is beautiful and poetic and has some really crazy camera movements and shots that are arranged, which you can do when you've built the whole world of your movie on sound stages at great expense uh, at, that are really impressive. You know, the downside to this is that you kind of you dwarf your characters and your story and that there's a real sense that these these two are almost like shrinking away into the background compared to these amazing like technical feats and uh, you know this amazing atmosphere uh, it, it becomes hard to it doesn't seem like you're heightening these normal problems it seems like you're almost obscuring them hmm. with all of these great surroundings uh, it is still very much worth looking at uh, just for like how the look of the film and the visual style alone it's uh it's an it's a really interesting um, overreaching film and uh you know i always have a soft spot for that so there's something to that always uh so that's one from the heart and it is streaming on netflix if you want a, a more successful version of this crazed fevered coppola both versions of apocalypse now are also available on netflix yeah and streaming. this was supposed to be his like small film that he made to follow up whoops yeah that didn't work out so yeah. well okay my last uh pick is another notable auteur of the new hollywood period uh one who i'm interested in i think because i feel like he's been somewhat forgotten and maybe minimized because as as much as coppola's career fell on hard times i think this guy had a similar decline um and he he never had like a winery to kind of come back to and I feel like he's due for maybe a rediscovery in some ways, and that's Peter Bogdanovich. Mm. And the movie that I picked is Paper Moon, available on Netflix. This is from 1973. And what's interesting about Bogdanovich in the scope of the new Hollywood era is a few things. One, he kind of came from the world of critics. He was a writer. He was a critic. He was a historian who became a director. So he has sort of that French New Wave kind of field because he, he came through the critical ranks like so many of the – French New Wave directors did. And the other thing is that maybe because he was a historian and a critic, his movies are so deeply nostalgic. They're always about the past. They're set in the past. And so many of them are also about making movies, the world of movies, I think makes him a particularly interesting director, especially within this period where so much of it was about redefining things, but also being very edgy and topical and new and modern. And you have this guy who almost every movie he made – was set in the past or was about the past, including, you know, the last picture show, his most famous, most successful, most beloved movie set in the past. And it is about, in some ways, the movies. What's Up Doc is a screwball comedy like something by Howard Hawks. And then this movie, Paper Moon, is set in the 1930s. It's black and white. It kind of has a feel of maybe an old John Ford uh, Depression era thing mixed with a con man movie. It was made by the quote-unquote the director's company, which was founded by Bogdanovich Coppola and William Friedkin, another new Hollywood guy who we haven't mentioned. 
The Exorcist and French Connection being his most famous movies. This was one of the few movies they made. This shows you how crazy this pe- this period got. The director's company with these guys had free reign to make whatever they wanted. Like for whatever <laughs> they were had like money and they could just make whatever they wanted. And that was how much power they had. And they made like three movies and it all fell apart. And of this course. was one of them. Of course. <laughs> of course. But um, I just rewatched this movie again last night. It, it's so wonderful. It's. It's Ryan and Tatum O'Neill, real-life father and daughter, playing perhaps a father and daughter. It's unclear exactly their relationship. Uh, Ryan O'Neill plays a con man, Mose, who begrudgingly agrees to temporarily adopt this young girl whose mother has died. Mose perhaps is the father, although he refuses to acknowledge he is. The mother was some sort of mm, floozy, maybe, could be a prostitute, unclear, and... She needs to get to her family uh, in Missouri, and he agrees to drive her there basically so he can use her as a prop to collect some blackmail money. And along the way, she figures out he's scamming people and taking advantage of her by using her to collect money. So she says, oh, I want my money too. And so she becomes a, uh, a, a part of his schemes and starts learning about being a con man on the road selling uh, Bibles to recently widowed women. Just because a man meets a woman in a bar room don't mean he's your pa. Eat your Coney Island. Well, then if you ain't my pa, I want my two hundred dollars. Okay. I want my two hundred dollars. I heard you through the door talking that man. It's my money you got, and I want it. Now, you, you just hold on a second. I want my money. You took my two hundred dollars. Will you quiet down? You hear? I want my two hundred dollars. Hold on. Just hold on. Let me explain something to you. It ain't as if you was my pa, that'd be different. Well, I ain't your pa, so just get that out of your head. I don't care what those neighbor ladies said. I look like You that. don't look nothing like me. You don't look any more like me than... Then you do that Coney Island. Eat that damn thing, you hear? We got the same jaw. Lots of people got the same jaw. It's possible. No, no, it ain't possible. And I want my two dollars. All right. She's so good in the movie as this little tomboy who is starting to kind of have this very complicated relationship with her own, I wouldn't say sexuality, maybe femininity. Her mother was obviously this woman who had a lot of boyfriends, let's say, and she is being confused while they're on the road with being a boy. And there's this one amazing scene that's, I don't know, it really, it's really moving. Most of the movie is a comedy, but there's this one scene where she's like looking at herself in the, in the mirror and she's like looking at this picture of her mother and trying to act like her mother. And then she tries on some jewelry she inherited from her dead mother. It's really like gut-wrenching stuff. It's really beautiful. And then the rest of the movie has this just great screwball kind of con man connection between the two. If you've never seen Paper Moon, and I suspect a lot of people haven't, it is a really, really wonderful movie. The second half isn't quite as great as the first, which I'd say is the first half is really just about perfect. There are a couple of long interludes that I don't think really – add up to a whole lot but the two main characters are so great and the the, the conclusion of the movie is so sweet and uh, wonderful as well so that's paper moon and it is available on netflix all right miss bryant you want an interview write this down are you naive enough to think containing german militarism has anything to do with this war don't you understand that england and france own the world economy and germany just wants a piece of it keep writing miss bryant miss bryant can't you grasp that jp morgan has loaned england and france a billion dollars and if germany wins he won't get it back more coffee america would be entering the war to protect jp morgan's money if he loses it we'll have a depression so the real question is why do we have an economy where the poor have to pay so the rich won't lose money 
All right, now, what haven't we covered? Economic freedom for women means sexual freedom, and sexual freedom means birth control. Dissent. The masses stand for dissent. what we have, we have a predominantly upper-middle-class readership, so we have to run around the country raising money for the magazine. Anyway, we... What? Well, I'm thinking that I guess I, uh... I ought to uh, offer you more coffee. And now we get to our listener's choice pick for the episode, which is Red's 1981 film, co-written, produced, directed by, and starring Warren Beatty, who had previously just co-directed Heaven Can Wait with uh, Buck Henry and would later go on to direct Dick Tracy. Uh, the film is based on the life of John Reed, a journalist turned communist who's best known for his book about the Russian Revolution, Ten Days That Shook the World. The film is structured around his relationship with Louise Bryant, played by Diane Keaton, who was dating Beatty at the time, a Portland housewife who leaves her dentist husband to come with Reed to New York to pursue her dreams of journalism. Reds puts John's uh, growing dedication to the Bolsheviks and his move away from writing to political action up against his domestic life. As much as this is a film about a tumultuous but loving and ultimately very moving relationship between two very imperfect people, it's also one about uh, how idealism, particularly the revolutionary idealism of the era, runs up against practice. You have things like this great, exciting, energizing moment when the czarist regime is overthrown, you know, going to the bureaucracy and infighting and disillusionment that followed. Or on the home front, you have all this talk of freedom and free love running up against the actual heartbreak uh, when it's, it turns in practice uh, in terms of uh, Louise and John's marriage. Uh, there's a lot to this film, which I like very much. But one of the first things that inev- invariably gets mentioned about it is its length. It's three hours and 14 minutes long. And there's an intermission in the middle. Matt, my first question for you is, uh, did this film feel long to you? Yes, it did. And uh, to answer what I'm sure is your second question, no, I don't know if it needed to be quite this long. But I felt all of the best moments were the relationship moments, and all of the weakest moments were the political moments. And I don't—it's certainly not a case of me, like, disagreeing or poo-pooing the fact that this is about communists. I could care less about that. And in general, I feel like my personal politics— jive pretty closely with Warren Beatty's. So it's not like I'm sitting here going, oh, well, this is nonsense. You know, these these lefty liberals and their foolish liberal agenda. It's not like me sitting there going, oh, poo-poo. It was more like I didn't ever feel like the movie explained any of it. You know, that it uses those things really literally as a backdrop. But it doesn't it, for all of the time it spends on it, I didn't feel like I got any greater insight into any of those events. Did you? Well, I think that it – no, I don't think so. And I, I think that it also – it filters it through this perspective of someone who is passionate about the ideals but also a slightly ridiculous figure sometimes and towards the end very clearly out of his depth. Yes. You know, there's a parallel at one point to uh, when uh, – John like walks out on his editor for changing his copy yes. that at the very end towards the end of the film he is just giving a speech he's been recruited by the Bolsheviks by the Soviets basically to um to help spread communism in different countries they they want to use him because he's an american and they want to have exactly. basically an american standing up there when they deliver speeches saying look here is an american who agrees with us right and then he's being tur- used he's more being or less used. and it turns out that like the translations being given of his speech are not what he's saying at all they're just being things to like rally whoever is being uh 
whoever he's talking to specifically aimed for that. Uh, and, you know, that when he realizes that, and he's basically sulking in the same way of like, you don't change my words. You see yourself as an artist and at the same time as a revolutionary, as a lover to your wife, but also as a spokesman for the American Zenobia, party. if you don't think a man can be an individual and be true to the collective or speak for his own country and the international at the same time or love his wife and still be faithful to the revolution, you don't have a self to give. Would you ever be willing to give yourself to this if revolution? You separate you? a man from what he loves the most, what you do is purge what's unique in him. And when you purge what's unique in him, you purge dissent. And when you purge dissent, you kill the revolution. Revolution is dissent. You don't rewrite what I write. No. What's interesting about that speech was, listening to Warren Beatty say that, I started to wonder if as you said, the movie is uh, has this backdrop, but it is really filtered through this perspective, which is maybe not totally understanding what's happening around him. He certainly understands the broader th- themes, but he doesn't even speak Russian really that much. So he's a witness to things he doesn't fully understand, but he be- he's a believer. He's a true believer. And as you said, it's about sort of the death of idealism and when what happens when idealism comes up against practical reality. And listening to that speech, and as you said, the comparison of him complaining as a journalist to an editor and then as a speechwriter to the person who's translating, I started to wonder if the movie actually has less to do with communism and more to do with filmmaking, filmmakers' rights, arguing for filmmakers' rights. You don't change what I write is essentially saying you don't change what I edit. You don't change what I shoot. I'm the director. I'm the writer. I'm the one with the voice. And, and, and in a sense, he's arguing for free speech. And what we see at the end of the movie is not so much that communism is great. In fact, it looks just as bad, if not worse, than America by the end of the movie. It's that it is that revolutionary idea. It's dissent. That's what it's all about. And so I thought ultimately that the movie is almost more effective when you look at it that way. When you look at it as Warren Beatty making an argument – I actually thought maybe not even just making an argument for filmmaking, but making an argument for Warren Beatty. You know, this idea of the of the high-minded liberal, the guy who believes in dissent and free ideas and the exchange of ideas, and also believes in free love. You know, the how many women did the Biskin say he slept with? <laughs> Almost thirteen thousand. And with and which his character does in the movie, and, and the movie doesn't necessarily take him to task for that. So I thought. In some ways, maybe the movie is more about Warren Beatty than about John Reed. That's an interesting read. I I don't know that you're when we hear him like yelling at first the, the editor Bolsheviks. and then the Bolsheviks. I don't know that we're supposed to be that sympathetic to him. I think oh. we're actually supposed to think he's a little bit of a fool. Oh, for, interesting. Like he's very he is, you know, he's awfully self-important for someone who is also a little out of touch with these things that he is trying to become a part of. I actually thought the key line in the movie is one that's delivered by uh, Jack Nicholson as Eugene O'Neill, the playwright with whom um, Louise has this affair. He says, you and Jack have a lot of middle-class dreams for two radicals, which I thought was the key to the movie, which is that, you know, all of these people who are talking about all of like so many of their friends uh, in, you know, lower Manhattan where they're, they're living in the beginning, uh, are still they are like you know coming from a somewhat privileged class and they're intellectuals and they're spouting off ideals about workers' rights and the workers rising up and meeting with unions but they are still uh, you know they are still middle class and coming from a place of privilege and also want a place of privilege you know it's made very clear that uh, John Reed 
wants to be the head of the revolution and he actually leads a split in the socialist party when it turns out that he's not going to get to be the one in charge right there's yeah. a battle of egos. There is. And they Which doesn't seem very socialist. It doesn't. Him. And I don't think, you know, you see that scene through Louise's eyes a lot. It keeps the camera keeps going back to her watching it happen. And you don't get the sense that it's supposed to be her. she's not admiring him. She sees right through him and she knows that like he's doing this out of ego. And I think that the film actually does presents a very nicely complicated portrait of that the fact that all of these ideas are fine in theory, but actually that they're very flawed people who are attempting, you know, regular people mm. trying to make them happen. And that when you actually do put them into practice, you run up against people wanting to be in charge or, you know, wanting power, even though they're espousing an idea about how no one will be in charge. The people will, you know, will be uh, will share uh, responsibility equally. Everyone will have a voice. Right. But I think that only emphasizes my point, I think, in some way, because you see in the movie how the practicalities all fall apart. It's all problems. It's all bickering and arguing and egos and all these things. And the only thing that is like pure are the ideas or are the films. You know, it's like only in film can oh but that's like saying uh well then the idea that you talk out with your friends about the movie you're going to make is the pure part you still have to make the movie and that's where the bickering comes in right i know but i feel like that still re-emphasizes the idea that warren Beatty is just giving uh giving us his reason for being warren Beatty. well do you think that he is a heroic character in this because i felt like there's actually a lot the film goes out of its way to kind of to show him as a little bit of a goof from the moment where he burns dinner spectacularly when he's trying to cook it to him bonking his head on chandeliers or failing to learn Russian or to tell a joke, you know? Absolutely. There are there are several scenes of him being a fool and there is a lot of comic relief at his expense. But one, to some degree, that is like Warren Beatty's shtick. Mm -hmm. He loved to be the guy who was incredibly handsome and charming, but also a bit of a fool and... I mean, that's a lot of what Shampoo is all about, is him being incredibly handsome and an incredible lover, but also being kind of incredibly dopey and sort of a fool at the same time. The last, let's say, 40 minutes of the movie, though, is also about his sort of like slow realization that builds to that final speech, where I think it's his sort of like big, grand, heroic moment, even if it doesn't amount to all that much in practical, again, practical terms. He gets to give the speech about his beliefs. He, uh, I don't guess, I don't know if we want to say what happens in the end, but it it sort of valorizes him, I think, in some ways. Uh, I didn't. I see. I you read saw that it totally differently. No, I I thought that was him basically realizing he'd failed and kind of, or also like had gotten uh, was somewhere that he didn't belong. And he says, you know, we go home. I've got a taxi waiting. Right. Right. Like, and it's it is sad because you're like, well, you finally accept the fact that you're not part of this. True. But he's also defiant to the bitter end, essentially, is what you see yeah, in those last few scenes. I don't scenes. know. It's not, I guess that's not my read of it. All we right. didn't, I, I do want to mention briefly, like Jack Nicholson is very good. He's in amazing in this movie. They're, like the scene, like the, like the best parts of the film are the scenes between him and Diane Keaton uh, as they kind of have this, yes flirtation and that turns uh it's like very heartbreaking actually because he's in love with her and uh and she uses it without necessarily being malicious but kind of 
as she's unhappy, when she's unhappy in her marriage, kind of starts st going back in that direction in a way that she knows is unfair. Right. Uh, and it's really, he's amazing. Yeah. He, he is amazing. He is one of those characters, because he's not in a lot of scenes, but he's one of those characters in a movie where you... There are times during this movie, which I ultimately did enjoy, but there were some scenes in the middle where I, I felt like it was really starting to get very long and uh, kind of without purpose. There are scenes at the end that I feel like the length, when they're separated, the, when Louise and, and Jack are separated at the end, th there's a reason for those scenes to be long because we're feeling sort of the separation. But there are a lot of parts in the middle where I didn't think it needed to be three hours and however many minutes. And when he disappears... You go, why? I want more of him. Why isn't the movie about him? You know, like, he should be spun off. I want to see the Jack Nicholson, Eugene O'Neill movie. Like, that's the movie that I want to see. That story doesn't end that well either. <laughs> <laughs> no, but his, like, his, his acting is amazing. The dialogue he's given to say oh, is great. so poetic. Yeah. And just every line he says to Louise, I mean, when he's in love with her, are just so, like, devastatingly beautiful. And then when he's... Because she's jilted him. Every line he says after that is so – it's like a dagger yeah. right in the heart. They're just so cold and brutal, and he plays it so perfectly. It's really amazing, and I agree with you. Most of the best scenes of the movie are between the two of them. It's funny, though. We've said so much about Beatty when – until maybe the last third of the movie, it's really almost as much or more of Diane Keaton's movie. Yeah. She's got just as much screen time. Did you did you enjoy her performance? I did. I did. I liked her a lot, and I liked the ways in which you see her growth, including uh, in the beginning when she's in New York, and she doesn't have anything to say, really. She's like the silent girlfriend at the table who no one really tries to engage in conversation with, and she feels she feels slighted, but she also isn't doing anything, you know, that like she she has nothing to say. She has not come up with an identity for herself or really summoned it like a calling found, found a calling and i like the ways in which she's oversensitive in which she doesn't take criticism at, she asks for criticism and then like gets really defensive when, about yeah, it immediately it. and all of those ways in which she kind of will say one thing and then act in a completely different way and like how she kind of changes mm -hmm. over the course of uh over the course of the film and also i mean towards what she does at the end which i thought was like Really, it was really touching. And uh, I, I thought at the end, in a way where you, their relationship is on and off so often that you get kind of you're not sure if you want them to succeed, you know, mm -hmm. or to like that you're not sure if you're invested in them as a couple. Yeah. But I thought towards the end, it actually really earned, uh, you know, them as as a pair that really loved each other. I agree, and they have they do have a a few very strong and very intense scenes between them, and. I think you mentioned that at the time they were an, a real-life couple, Beatty and Keaton. And so that adds an an extra interesting dimension, especially because it is so much about this couple that's constantly breaking up and getting back together, which is kind of what was happening to them behind the scenes. And again, when you couple the fact that this is a movie about a guy who is sort of a playboy and is constantly concerned with other things, it does play as kind of this weird kind of beautiful apology in some ways to this woman that he loves but can't quite commit to or never had quite enough time for, you know? And the fact that they don't end up together in real life, obviously, kind of makes it even that much more touching. But again, that was what worked for me. The the revolutionary stuff, it kind of felt a little touristy to me, you know? It, it just, it kind of felt like it was... I felt like that was... You know, I still I think feel that's like that's the kind point. of the point. That's kind that, of the point. Like, they, he never really... He's never was someone who was really ever going to be able to 
be a part of this mm-hmm. you know we didn't even mention uh but the film is like is threaded throughout with interviews with witnesses as as they're labeled people who knew knew these characters the real were, life like, real life Louise Bryan and Jack Reed yeah and like they uh I, I thought these were actually it's an interesting technique and becomes a kind of nice chorus of like uh you know I don't know, like, rem- like from people who, you know, start off in the beginning being like, I didn't really remember them, who were like, you know, knew them, but like, right. were like, eh, they weren't that important. I thought, like, actually to put them in that concept- context was really interesting. And the fact that none of them are credited individually when they appear on screen, there's no lower third explaining this is so-and-so who was a playwright or a senator or whoever, that they have in sense that sort of socialist kind of mass to them, that they're all, their voices are all considered equally in the film, I thought was very interesting. And an interesting contrast to the fact that, as we've said, the actual communists in the movie are kind of egotists and are fighting for control and all that sort of thing. Let's wrap things up with this question, Allison. The the movie won a few awards, was nominated for a lot of awards. It has a lot of acclaim now as kind of a late masterpiece of the new Hollywood era. Do you look at it that way, having seen it? Is it a masterpiece? Is it a classic? I think it's a classic. I really, It really won me over in ways that I didn't expect. And I actually like the way that the length plays into it and that the way it gives equal weight to the relationship and that story, the story of being caught up in this, the, the rise of communism in, in Russia. I would put it maybe just below a masterpiece. I enjoyed it. I liked it. I don't know if it needed to be that long. You've made some interesting points for why all of those scenes of the revolution are in there. I just, I'm still not entirely convinced. And like I said, I think it plays more convincingly as a movie about filmmaking than it is about communism. Fair enough. Well, that is Reds and it is streaming on Netflix. Okay, next up is Behind the Eight Ball, which we give you a rapid-fire countdown of three picks that are new to streaming, two that are expiring soon, and one pick chosen blindly by a number from our Netflix queues. Matt, you're going to go first. I am. Are you ready? I am ready. All right, give me three new to streaming picks. Okay, first up, we have Moon, which is now available on Crackle. This is the film from Duncan Jones, the sci-fi film starring Sam Rockwell, I believe it was a film spotting brick winner on our uh, sister show, our parent show. Either way, that is Moon. It is now available on Crackle. Now available on Hulu, Jackie Brown, Quentin Tarantino's uh, classic ode to black exploitation with Pam Greer and Robert Forrester, was uh, was considered at the time not as good as Pulp Fiction, and maybe it's still not considered as good. But I think in the years since, it's taken on quite a reputation as. Perhaps an underrated Tarantino film. And last but not least, actually it is last but least in this trio, but it's available on Netflix, Immortals, the uh, (laughs) deliciously campy, uh, tarsome uh, answer to 300 where people in old-timey Greece that never existed in the sides of rock cliffs in impossible uh, settings but with beautiful visuals fight and scream and grunt and have big oily chests that is immortals and it is available on netflix okay two that are expiring soon okay there's not a ton of stuff expiring in the middle of the month this month so here's some that are expiring this week uh, both uh, expiring on netflix on july 12th which i know doesn't give you much time but first up uncle boon me a uh, P- uh, peach where a seth cool film uh monkey men uh, life death the afterlife everything in between that's expiring on July 12th. Also expiring on July 12th, the documentary Alice Neal about the artist Alice Neal. And it's uh, directed by her grandson, Andrew Neal, who did the documentary Darkon. 
Okay, and one picked from your Netflix queue. You gave me number 33, which is a movie I know very little about. It is called Run for Cover. I can tell you it is a Nicholas Ray film starring Jimmy Cagney. I believe I found this by uh, looking at a list of like strange and interesting and off-the-beaten-path Hollywood movies that were never released on DVD or VHS but are available on streaming, and that is one. And I believe... The late, great Ernest Borgnine has a supporting role in that film. He passed away. As we're recording this, he passed away a few hours ago. An unintentionally appropriate choice by you, Allison, of Run for Cover, which is available on Netflix. Good job, me. Good job, you. Okay, are you ready for your own Behind the Eight Ball Countdown? I am. Okay, three new releases. Go. Okay, the first one is American Animal. This is uh, on Netflix streaming. This is an indie I have not seen yet, directed by Matt D'Elia. Uh, that has generated some of the most wildly divisive reviews that I can remember recently about a guy who is uh, descending into madness, apparently, when he discovers his roommate is leaving for a new job because you never like people to have jobs. <laughs> and that is on Netflix. Next is Nothing Sacred, 1937 screwball comedy, the first, I think, to be filmed in, in color, directed by William A. Wellman, about an unscrupulous New York reporter who's sent to interview a girl who's supposed to be dying. She's not actually dying, but she doesn't tell him that because she wants a free trip to New York. And, of course, they fall in love. That is on Hulu. And finally, Urbanized is on Netflix. It's the third part of documentarian Gary Huswitz's design trilogy, which also includes Helvetica and Objectified. And Urbanized looks at, looks at urban design and features interviews with architects and policymakers and theorists who all talk about how we shape and live in cities. And that is on Netflix. Okay, two expiring titles. Okay, expiring on July 16th on Netflix is 2010, The Year We Make Contact, directed by Peter Himes. It's his 1984 sequel to Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey. Not a bad film. It just is one that has the misfortune of being the follow-up to a masterpiece. And expiring on July 17th on Netflix is Caramel, which is the debut film from Lebanese actress and filmmaker Nadine Labaki, whose second film, Where Do We Go Now?, came out this year. Uh, she's one of the few Lebanese filmmakers and is on top of that a woman, and her film's... Uh, feature both an interesting look into Lebanon and have a very distinct female perspective. In this case, it's at a beauty salon in Beirut and focuses on these different women's personal lives. So that is Caramel, and it is expiring from Netflix. Okay, and one random film from your queue? You picked number 15, which for me was Together, Lucas Moodyson's 2000 film about an abused wife who takes her kids to live with her brother in a wacky commune, one that I've been meaning to see for a while especially since Lucas Moodyson hasn't always done comedies more recently. So uh, I would like to see this. I haven't yet got to it. All right. Time now for the options for next episode's listener's choice vote. First up is Two Days in New York, which is now available on iTunes and VOD. This is the new film from Julie Delpy, who directs, co-writes, and stars. It's the sequel to her 2007 film Two Days in Paris, in which she co-starred with Adam Goldberg. She's replaced Adam Goldberg with Chris Rock. That is her new co-star in the sequel. Choice. She's her that Chris Rock plays Julie Delphi's live-in boyfriend. They're a family. They live together with their each have their own respective children, I believe. And her family comes uh, from France for a visit to New York and stirs up some Gaelic uh, chaos. 
So that's Two Days in New York. It's available on iTunes and Video On Demand. That is option one. Allison, what is option number two? Well, option number two is Rampart. This is a film from last year. It is going to be available streaming on Netflix on July 14th. It's a film from Oren Moverman, who directed The Very Good, The Messenger, and features him working again with Woody Harrelson, who was an actor in that movie. And actually, the the lead in that movie, Ben Foster, also appears in this film. But this is really Harrelson's movie. Uh, He plays a police officer in 1999 Los Angeles uh, in the Rampart Division, which was, you know, also uh, the source of a giant scandal. And he he plays a kind of cop that really uh, is made to exist in the movies, but did sort of exist in real life as well. Uh, it's, you know, this is a screenplay that Moverman wrote with James Elroy, the great James Elroy. So, you know, it's got a lot of like grits and noirish elements to it, uh, as well as a great Harrelson performance. So that is on Netflix or will be on Netflix soon. Our last pick, we had kind of wanted to do something to honor Ernest Borgnine because of his passing. We looked on Netflix, not a ton of options that would make you go what a great career more like hey what happened to Ernest Borgnine in the end of his career so we had to unfortunately kibosh that idea the other thing that we kind of came to was just looking casually at Netflix we noticed there's a lot of Wong Kar Wai films that are now available on Netflix a lot of his early movies and I actually haven't seen a lot of his early movies the ones that are available these this is the full list of what's available on there now as tears go by days of being wild Fallen Angels, Happy Together, and In the Mood for Love. So if you haven't seen any of those movies, those are all now available on Netflix uh, and worth checking out. I hadn't seen a bunch of those, and I thought, let's use this as a chance to maybe catch up with one of them. I put it to you and said, whichever one you want to do, Allison, uh, we can do. So which one did you pick, Allison? I picked Days of Being Wild, which I'm looking forward to seeing again because it's been a long time. It's also kind of the most Wong Kar Wai of the Wong Kar Wai movies. That's right. That's what you said. That's how you described it to me. It's the 1990 film starring Leslie Chung, Maggie Chung, Andy Lau, great cast, and as you said, you think of it as the most Wong Kar Waiian of Wong Kar Wai films. And I have to embarrassingly admit, I have never seen Days of Being Wild, so it'll be interesting. If that one gets picked, it should be a, an interesting discussion. All right. Well, which movie should we review on the next episode of Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit? You can send your pick to feedback at filmspottingsvu.com or enter in the poll on the right-hand side of the page at filmspottingsvu.com. Your vote must be received by Monday, July 16th at noon. And after that, we'll announce the winner on Twitter at our Twitter account, twitter.com slash filmspottingsvu. You'll have all that week to watch the film and then join us for our conversation on next week's episode, which will be on Monday, July 23rd. Film Spotting SVU is also where you can find our show archive as well as a list of direct links to all the movies we discuss on the show. The Film Spotting SVU remix theme song is by Vince Vandal. Listen to more of Vince's work at vincevandal.com. We'll be back in two weeks with more movie recommendations and the movie review you pick. In the meantime, you can follow me and Allison on Twitter, twitter.com slash Allison Wilmore and twitter.com slash Matt Singer. And you can follow the show at twitter.com slash Filmspotting SVU. I know we've been we've been tweeting out a lot more on there recently. We've been relaying all of your listener suggestions. So email us, give us some suggestions for streaming titles, and we share them with you guys at twitter.com slash filmspottingsvu. That's also where we announce the winner of each week's listener's choice and where we share, again, more streaming suggestions from you guys, the SVU listeners. For Filmspotting SVU, I'm Matt Singer. And I'm Allison Wilmore. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.